and happy Sabbath. And for the five of you who have no idea who we are, my name is Caleb, this is Mrs. Addison, and we will be giving the sermon this morning. Before we go any further, please join me in bowing your heads in a word of prayer. Uh, dear Father, please, please come into this room now, and please be with each of the people here. And if someone needs to make a decision to give their hearts to you today, Father, please help them to make that decision, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, there was a baseball game. It was Jesus' team against Satan's team. The score was 3-0, to zero, and Satan's team was in the lead. So now... It's Jesus' team's turn to bat. So Jesus sends up his first player. This player's name is Love. So Love goes up to the, the plate, gets ready. He hits the ball, and Love makes it to the first base. The second player um, who goes up, this player's name is Faith. Now Faith goes up, he gets ready, he hits the ball, and Faith gets on the base as well. So now, the, the, the third player, his name is Godly Wisdom. Godly Wisdom goes up, he gets ready, and he sees the ball, he lets it pass. He gets up there again, he sees the ball, and he lets it pass again. This happens two more times, and Godly Wisdom gets to walk. So now, all the bases are full, and so Jesus, he's, he's watching this game with his good friend named Billy. So Jesus said to Billy that he was going to send up his star player. So this player's name was Grace. Grace went up to the, uh, the base, he got ready, he hit the ball, and he uh, got a grand slam. So Love comes uh, to the home base, he passes home base. Uh, Faith comes, he passes home base. Godly Wisdom comes and he uh, crosses home base. And finally, Grace comes and crosses home base to win the game. So after the game, um, Jesus asked Billy, and if you remember, Billy is Jesus' good friend. So Jesus asked Billy if he knew why Grace, um, or Grace was able to win the whole game, but why faith, love, and godly wisdom had only been able to get onto the base. So Billy said he didn't know why. And so Jesus explained that if you had got, if the game had been won by faith, love, and godly wisdom, you would have thought you could have done it by your own strength. Only my grace can get you home. So, grace always wins. That's it. That's our sermon. We'll see you all next week. <sighs> yeah, you know we're joking because that's what we do. But that phrase right there, grace always wins, that, you know, it, could get, it can get you through life. Maybe not school, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, but we decided to take a closer look at the word grace. So we asked five people what their definitions of grace were, and their ages are ranging from seven to 107. We'll let you guess who, what ages go with what um, definition. But the first definition is, Grace is an unconditional love and forgiveness that is not deserved and can be achieved, only gifted. The second is Jesus dying in my place so I can live in his place. The next one is receiving forgiveness when you don't deserve it. 
Fourth, is God, uh, grace is an undeserved favor or where God shows goodness to those who may not deserve it. And the last one is not getting what I deserve. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. It has to be given to me freely. So these are all good, good definitions of grace, but we want to get the best possible definition. So I was thinking back to all the English teachers I've had, Mrs. Jordan, Mrs. Lindsay Santana, Ms. Johnson, and the common thread with all of them is that Wikipedia is a very reliable source. So I went to Wikipedia, but then I thought I could one-up Wikipedia. So I went straight to Google and typed in definition of grace into the Google search engine, and this is what it spit out. The spontaneous, unmerited gift of the divine favor and the salvation of sinners and the divine influence operating in individuals for the regeneration and sanctification. Which I'm sure you all understand, right? Yeah, I didn't think so. That's about as clear as mud. So it's just a little hard to understand, so we decided to take it upon ourselves to create a definition that everyone can understand. Hopefully. This is what we came up with. Grace is an unrepayable gift from God to us. We shouldn't be allowed to have it, and most times we feel like we can't accept it. But it's the only way for us to be forgiven and for us to be able to forgive others. So, we had to choose a story for our sermon almost two months ago. We have to admit, we might have changed it more than once. But the problem is, there's just so many stories in the Bible where you can see grace abounds, in, where grace abounds in the story. From Genesis to Revelation and to this very second, you can see that grace has flowed and it's going to continue to flow. But we did finally decide on a story, and as you can probably tell, we chose Joseph and his brothers. Or as I like to call it, Joe and his bros. So I'm sure most of you are very familiar with the story of Joseph. We've studied it in church and Sabbath school lessons many times over. So I'm just going to give a quick crash course on the story for some of you who may not be familiar with it. So we have this kid named Joseph. He has 11 older brothers, and he starts having these dreams that they do not appreciate. And their hatred towards him grows and grows and grows to the point where they eventually sell him. They sell their own brother to these merchants who take him to Egypt where he gets sold as a slave. He works for a man named Potiphar, becomes, second, becomes in charge of all of his estate, and then Potiphar's wife gets him thrown in jail. And then in jail, he, become, he works his way up to the head prisoner and then gets forgotten for two years by one of his buddies until the king calls him to come interpret his dreams. And then the king realizes that he's a pretty smart person, so he makes him second in charge of the entire country. And so, and that's the... And, that's, and then Joseph's brothers end up coming, and they have their whole affair, and it's a nice happy ending at the very end. Mm -hmm. But we decided to take a closer look at the disasters that happened in Joseph's life, starting with the cistern or the pit. So Joseph headed to his brothers, and they were watching their sheep in the fields. Joseph finally found his brothers and started running to them to check on them because their father had asked Joseph to do so. Hey, Judah, Simeon, looking good, Dan. Then Joseph's brothers grabbed him, and they started to harass Joseph, pushing him, kicking him, and spitting on him. Then they finally finished their bullying and picked up Joseph and threw him into the bottom of the cistern, where he landed, in the, where he landed at the bottom in agony and sat there for three days. We often only look at the story from the, Joseph's perspective. However, we rarely look at it from the perspective of the brothers. 
Let's take a look now at their brothers and their perspective of this story. Joseph's brothers were out in Goshen taking care of their father's sheep. They were probably enjoying some time without Joseph around, I'm sure we can all imagine. And then all of a sudden, off in the distance, they can see this young man walking toward them with a very vibrant coat on. And it doesn't take them too long to realize that it's Joseph who's coming towards them. And I can imagine there was a collective groan among themselves when they recognized him. It's the dreamer. So it was at this point that they were so fed up with Joseph that they were going to get rid of him through whatever means necessary. Once Joseph arrived, they had agreed that they would strip Joseph of his coat and then throw him down into the bottom of the pit. When Joseph got down to the brothers, I can imagine them mocking Joseph, making fun of him and pushing him around. Then when one of the brothers gave the signal, they got up and they got Joseph to the edge of the pit and pushed him into it. After this, they sat down and ate lunch like it was no big deal at all. And then three days later, they could see some merchants coming off, coming in the distance, and they recognized them. They weren't uh, deadly merchants. They weren't gonna, uh, unfriendly, they weren't gonna harm them. But they were trying to think if they had anything with them that, that they could possibly sell to make some money. Uh, well, let's, let's look in our bag here. Well, that's not gonna be helpful. Um, hmm. Who ate all the food? I've got to make more food now. Oh, Mr. Lion's got to go back in there. Um, hey, I've been looking for this. Well, there goes the ball. Well, um, man, don't have anything. It was at this point that the brothers realized that they could sell their own flesh and blood and sell Joseph as a slave. And they sold him for a whopping 20 pieces of silver, which, we, based on the research we did, is equivalent to about $200 in today's currency. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first heard that it, he was only sold for $200, that sounded kind of like a bargain to me. I mean, based on what we know from the Bible, he was handsome, he was good-looking, he was strong, and I feel like that would have maybe jacked up the price a little bit for him. But the more research we did into it, we found out that it truly was cheap. It was simply pocket change the brothers had on them to get the deal done. They did not make enough money off of it to split it evenly among the brothers to make enough of a profit off of it. Which is very similar to how Jesus was only sold for 30 pieces of silver, which was also an absolute bargain. So, first of all, Joseph's brothers were not nice to him at all as we just witnessed. Um, you can see they didn't kindly ask Joseph to take off his robe and jump into the pit to die. Um, so if you uh, look at Genesis 37 verses 23 and 24, it says, so when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. So according to this verse, Joseph's brothers were not nice to him at all. Even if that you thought what we just acted up here was theatrical and we were trying to make a big deal out of it, this was straight out of the Bible. But on, this proves that Joseph's brothers weren't nice to him at all. But on top of throwing Joseph into the pit, they mocked Joseph and, sho and shoved him and whatever else your siblings do to you when they gang up on you. Except... This was all much worse than everything else they had done because they truly hated him with everything in their being. They were so fed up with him at this point they were ready to get rid of him through whatever means necessary, which is when they threw him into the pit and then sold him as a slave. And the fall that he suffered to the bottom of the pit was not a nice little three-foot hop where he could have just made it out. Based on the research we did, it was about a 10 to 12-foot drop onto rock. 
which is pretty much just falling off of a one-story house on the concrete. Stuff like when you were little and you would take the bed sheet off your bed and you would grab the corners to make a parachute and you'd go up to the second story of the dorm, get on the windowsill, and in your mind, you're just going to Mary Poppins away at the bottom and land on your tippy toes. So you get up, you jump, and gravity instantly takes over and you crash the ground. Oh, am I the only one who did that? Okay. But except when you fell, the only difference between you and Joseph is when you fell, you more likely fell onto grass versus him falling straight onto rock. So I remember when we used to have one of those campers where you had the crank and you'd stick it into the gear and you'd start to turn it and the top of the camper would slowly, slowly rise up and then you could go glamping. You could not camp with this thing, it was glamping. But when we weren't glamping, yep, there it is. When we weren't glamping, it was parked at the top of a hill and we would go on top of it. We sometimes decided to play on it. It was nice and flat, so uh, we would go and play on it. And one day, my sweet brother decided to dare his little sister to jump off of the top of the camper onto concrete barefoot. Thinking that she had enough sense in her to say no to it. It's a dare. You can't not do a dare. So I did it and ended up with a broken foot and lots of bloody toes. So I was very mad at my brother. But just imagine Joseph. He's falling from double the height that I fell. And I ended up with a broken foot from that height. Imagine how many broken bones he would have from double. And um, unlike me, because I wanted to jump, he did not. He was shoved in there. <clears throat> It, did, it would probably not have ended well for him. So it's at this point in the story that Joseph now has to go with these strangers to a brand new country as a slave, probably not being treated very well. Once he makes it to Egypt, Joseph is now being sold as a slave and soon becomes a slave to Potiphar. And finally things start to take a turn for the better when Joseph gets put in charge of all of Potiphar's estate. But then things start to crumble when Potiphar's wife gets Joseph thrown in prison. But while in prison, he works his way up the ranks and becomes the head prisoner. And things are finally starting to look good. But then his, he interprets the dreams of the wine taster and the baker and asks the wine taster to mention his name to the king when he gets back into service. And the wine taster forgets for two years until the king needs somebody to interpret his dreams. And so the wine taster's like, oh, yeah, Joseph. So he went, goes and gets Joseph. Joseph comes, interprets the dream to the king, and the king's like, you're smart. I'm making you second in command of the entire country. And so Joseph's story has been an absolute roller coaster of a ride at this point, up and down and up and down. But things are finally starting to look really, really good for Joseph. And it's at this point that his brothers enter the picture once again. So, now we're going to hop into a time machine, because um, they definitely had those back then. And we're going to go 22 years later from the pit. Joseph has finally become second in charge of all of Egypt. And that's a pretty big climb from going from slave to second in charge. So, he wakes up one morning and he's getting ready to meet with people from beyond because it's the famine, so he's going to meet with people from Canaan and Israel and Egypt and all those other countries. And so, as he's sitting on his throne, you know, in the distance he can, you know, maybe he can see a group of ten men who, they, they look like foreigners, and he, he has the slightest thought, maybe it's my brothers, but 
no, it couldn't be them. And so he just, he, he continues to look at all the other people. And so as they come closer, he can start to make them out. That, that one looks like Judah and, and, and Simeon, Le Levi. And so he can name them off, name or one by one. And uh, as they're, they're now bowing down before him. And he's having those flashbacks to his dreams where he had the dreams of them bowing down to him. And so... While he, was, while he was up on his throne, Joseph had two sticks with him that are pretty similar to what we have right now. And so the one with the pieces of wood dangling off of it, that one represents being an enforcer and um, bringing justice. The one that looks like a cane for a very short person is the one that uh, represents being a shepherd and a protector. And so it was at this point he lifted both of his sticks in the air and he thought, Which choice will I make? Justice or mercy? Joseph thinks for a quick moment and decides in the instant to not tell his brothers who they had just bowed down to. He still wanted to test them to know if they, um, if they had changed from when they were younger. So... He speaks sharply to them, acting as a stranger, and he says, Spies, I tell you, spies. So when Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies, they deny it, knowing that being called spies by the second in command never ends well. So now the brothers are being sent to prison, still denying being spies, but um, Joseph not believing them. Or I guess the second in command not believing them. So, while they're in prison, I can imagine Joseph, he's, he's trying to listen and hear what their brothers are saying, and they're probably talking out loud. They wouldn't think that anyone in Egypt, especially the second in command, would know any Canaanite. And so they would speak out loud, and they're probably talking about how they're now being treated for what they did to Joseph so many years ago. And so he can hear them, and... So he decides after three days to bring them out to him, which, if we remember, three days is the same amount of time they left him in the pit. So they hear uh, Joseph called them out, and he said, if he wanted, or if they wanted uh, Joseph to believe that they weren't spies, they would have to go get their younger brother and leave one of their brothers here to ensure that they would come back. And so they. They agreed. They didn't know what else to do. They needed the food, and so um, he, uh, he, he said that they'd have to bring their younger brother, and that was the, how, they would, how he would believe. He, um, that was how he would believe that they were not spies. It had been over two decades since Joseph's brothers had last seen him. And the last time they had seen him, he was a skinny teenager with tears in his eyes as he was being taken away by strangers to a brand new country, now as a slave. What his brothers did not know is that God was going to use this to save their entire family in the future. His brothers all got married and all had kids of their own, and they continued to tend the, to tend the sheep and farm, to tend the land and farm the... <sighs> To tend, to tend the sheep and farm the land. There we go. 
And they prospered during the seven years of prosperity. But then when the seven years of famine hit, they all started to starve. And it was at this point that Jacob caught wind of a story that out in Egypt, they had stored food during the seven years of prosperity, and you could go and buy some so you wouldn't die of starvation. And so Jacob sends the brothers back to Egypt to purchase food, where they are then accused by the second in command of being spies. No, no your highness, we're, we're ten brothers in the land of Canaan. You have to believe us, hot, sir, hot, your highness. And the second in command does not buy their story, and so he promptly sends them to jail for three days. And in that time, they played exactly one game of Monopoly because it took them that long. And eventually, they get called back into a hearing with the second in command of Egypt once again. What have we done now? In a twist, they were actually let go free by the second in command on the condition that next time they come and get food, they must have the younger brother with them no. or they will be executed as spies. We can't do that! So, the brothers did go back and they finally convinced the, their father to let them take Benjamin back to Egypt. Hunger is a very powerful motivator. So all 11, or 10, since Simeon was uh, still in prison, all 10 of them headed back to Egypt. And that's when Joseph decided to have the banquet for his brothers, and then he sent them home again. But this time, Joseph decided to put the cup into Benjamin's sack. And that is when Joseph had his servants go out and bring back his brothers. And oh, they were very, very sad, angry, whatever you want to say that that's extremely sad. They, they didn't know what to do. They came down, they were crawling at his feet. They didn't know how they were going to get out of this. So that is when Joseph yells, Out! All of you! And Joseph breaks down crying in front of his brothers. It says in the Bible that Joseph was weeping so loudly, the news made it to the king's palace. And Joseph then tries to convince his brother, he was their actual brother from so long ago, and it seemed impossible to them that the teenager who they'd so long ago thrown into the pit left to die and then sold was now the second in command of all of Egypt. And besides that, Joseph had adopted the looks of an Egyptian, which, as you can tell, is very different from the looks of a Canaanite. So, they finally did believe him, but they were now all terrified because he could wipe them out with the uh, slightest, slightest movement, and they were, they were terrified. But Joseph, he, he tried to convince them that he wanted, he wanted to forgive them. But it seemed impossible to them that they could be given such huge grace. It was huge grace they definitely didn't deserve. And sometimes we're exactly like the brothers. We never can believe we're actually forgiven and given grace. We're always looking behind our shoulder, not believing we've actually been forgiven from whatever we did. We never think that someone could have enough grace and forgiveness for us to forgive all that we've done. And it seems humanly impossible. That's because it is. Because without Christ, we could not ever give forgiveness or give grace. And 
all those things. We could never do it. And that's why Christ had to go to the cross for us, because he was the only one who could forgive us what we've all done. We have no chance without his grace. Finally, the brothers ran back to tell their father that Joseph was still alive and was doing well. You gotta really believe well. us, he's alive! He's doing really well! And Jacob did not believe them at first. He probably thought they'd been out in the sun for a little too long. It took them telling him two times before he finally believed that Joseph was still alive and he also saw everything that Joseph had sent. And it's at this point that he exclaimed, My son Joseph is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. So he packed up his family and they traveled to Egypt where Joseph was waiting anxiously, pacing back and forth, waiting for his family to arrive. So when the caravan got close to Egypt, Jacob sent Judah ahead to meet Joseph and get directions to Goshen because, let's be honest, they were all males leading the way. The women were all babysitting the kids and the men. So, uh, they had to take a bunch of loop-de-loops and turnarounds, and they had to stand on their head, too. They finally made it to Goshen, and Joseph was on his way in his chariot. So when he made it, he hopped, or he jumped out of his chariot, and he ran to meet his father, and they embraced. If you just think, it's been over two decades from, from this reunion, with Jacob thinking his son, Joseph, was dead. And it's, it says in Genesis 46, verse 29, when Joseph arrived, he embraced his father and wept, holding him for a long time. And I read that Joseph, or Jacob, he was so happy, his heart almost stopped completely. And this is not just like a literary device to say like his heart almost stopped, but not really. This is literally a medical condition that can actually happen. So a couple of months back, there was a horrific shooting in Avoni, Texas. And one of the teachers that got shot during the shooting died three days later from her wounds. And her spouse died three days after she died, literally from a broken heart. That is what ended up causing his death. Fortunately, in the case of Jacob, his heart almost stopped out of pure joy. He just could not comprehend that his son was actually still alive. Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years, and then he died. And once he died, the brothers talked among themselves and agreed that Joseph had only been kind to them because Jacob had been alive. And now that Jacob was dead, Jacob, Joseph was going to come by and wipe them out one by one. So they all got together, and they wrote a letter to Joseph. And if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, we're going to read verses 16 through 21. It says, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? What you intended, but uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. 
Joseph had truly learned his lesson, and he had already forgiven his brothers all those years ago when they had first arrived in Egypt. And we act this exact same way when we are, that the brothers did whenever we are forgiven and are given grace. We usually do not believe that we have been forgiven and struggle with accepting that grace is given to us without us having to repay it in some way. We are always looking over our shoulder, waiting for God to see us make one mistake and then come by and wipe us out. But in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does not just forgive us, but wipes our sins completely away and covers us in his grace. So God had definitely planned it so that Joseph would be the only one to recognize his brothers and not the other way around. I think God wanted to test Joseph and see if he had learned about grace throughout his life and to see if he would be able to give grace to his brothers after all the tremendous pain they caused him. Because if you think about it, it would have been so much easier for Joseph to forgive his brothers if his brothers had said they were sorry, Joseph forgave them, and it all worked out. Because if you think about it, you're, if whenever your uh, coworker, or spouse or your brother and sister, they do something wrong to you, they say they're sorry, and you forgive them, and it works out. But how many times are we the wronged person, the one saying that we're sorry? It's not often enough, sadly. And it's goes, it, totally, it goes totally against human nature. It's something that we can't possibly imagine that we should do. And it seems totally wrong for us. So if you, if you look at Jesus' story and Joseph's story, they parallel each other incredibly well. Both Jesus and jo Joseph were wrongly accused. Jesus was accused by a lot of people, but you could say mainly Judas. Um, and Joseph, he was accused by his brothers. And more people, but mainly his brothers. They both experienced pain um, from people who were close to them, and they both ultimately forgave and extended huge grace to the people who hurt them. Like we already talked about, grace and forgiveness, first of all, go hand in hand. But second, uh, they go against everything that is in our human nature. Giving grace and forgiveness is a choice that somebody can only make if they have Christ in their heart. However, once you extend grace to somebody, it's going to keep flowing because they can't keep it for themselves. So they're going to pass it on, and that person's going to pass it on, and that person's going to pass it on, and it's going to be like a domino effect. And it kind of sounds maybe like something like each one reach one, you know? I don't know if you've heard about that, but um, it kind of sounds like that. So you can see since the beginning of time and to this very second, grace has always been flowing and it's always been winning. Only grace could restore and bring back together Joseph's family. So I got one story, Addison has a couple of lyrics from a song she wants to read, and then we'll close and you can go eat your cold special K-loaf. So how many of you, by a show of hands, have either read the book or seen the movie Unbroken? Okay, alright. So for the vast majority of you who have not, we're going to educate you here quickly, but I strongly recommend you go and read the book. It's well worth your time. 
It's about this man named Louis Zamperini. It talks about his whole life story, his early childhood. He was a delinquent, but then becomes a track star. And he, stuck, he runs in the Olympics. He's going to run in the 1940 Olympics. But then this little skirmish called World War II kind of put a kibosh on that. And he enlists in the Navy. And he gets put on this bomber crew. And one day, he and his crew are out flying a rescue mission when both of their engines go down and they crash. And of the nine people that were on the plane, three survived the crash. And while they only had two rafts for the three of them, and one of the three ended up dying while they were out in the ocean. But the other two made it 42 days on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Eventually, they get picked up by the Japanese and are placed in a Japanese prisoner camp. And there's this one guard in this camp, his nickname is the bird, like the animal, and he does everything in his power to do whatever he can do to make Louis's life miserable. He talks about horrible things they do to him in the story. One of the things is he's forced to hold up this beam, this wooden beam. If he drops it, he's gonna get shot. Um, there's another time where he's forced, he's held up by two guards, and he's forced to take a punch in the face from all 200 prisoners. Just horrible stuff. Whatever the bird could do to demean Louis, he would do. Eventually, through the grace of God, he survived the prison camp and made it back to the States. But once he got back, he suffered from severe PTSD from the bird. And fortunately, his whole life got turned around when he went and met Billy Graham at a crusade meeting and gave his life to Jesus. It was at this point that he dedicated the rest of his life to giving his testimony to bring as many people to Jesus as possible. And he really struggled with the idea of forgiveness and grace, especially with the bird and all the uh, Japanese guards who had been horrible to him, as I'm sure we can imagine. But eventually, through the grace of God, he got to the point where he was willing to go and offer in-person forgiveness to all the people who had treated him horribly. So he hops on a plane and he flies over to Japan to talk to each of these people individually in person. And he's able to talk to about 95% of all the people he wanted to talk to in person. Unfortunately, there were a couple people, including the bird, that refused to talk to him in person. And so Louis writes a letter, he gets in contact with one of the bird's friends, and asks him if he could get this letter to the bird. Now we don't know if he, this letter actually ever made it to the bird. But I would like to read it to you quickly and just show you what, how Ruby got to the place where he was willing to forgive the bird. It says, to Matsuro Watanbi, which was the bird's real name. As a result of my prisoner of war experience, under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you had probably committed harikiri, which is Japanese suicide, which I was sad to hear. As that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian, Louis Zamperini. 
Joseph had a choice with his brothers to extend justice, which is what they deserved, or grace, an act of forgiveness that they did not deserve. And he chose grace because he had Christ in him. And Christ offers the same two choices to us to this day. If we choose to have him living in our lives, he extends us his staff of grace and mercy to pull us out of our pits. However, if we choose to live our lives without him, he has no choice but to extend his staff of justice, which, and then we suffer the wages of sin, which we all know to be death. God's offer is there. We just have to accept it. So we, as we invite the worship team up, I'd like to read, a, Addison here is going to read a few lyrics from a song most of you have probably heard, Grace Wins by Matthew West. So, in this song, it talks about these instances in the Bible where you, where you can see grace wins. It says, for the prodigal son, grace wins. For the woman at the well, grace wins. For the blind man and the beggar, for always and forever. For the lost out on the streets, for the worst part of you and me. For the thief on the cross, and for a world that is lost, grace wins. So our final question is how many of you would love to have grace win in your life like Joseph had with his brothers, like Jesus had with everyone who betrayed him, like the woman at the well, the thief on the cross, the blind man and the beggar, and like Louis Zamperini had with the bird. Like all those people and so many more, they let grace win in their life. There was something different about them. And if you would love to give your life to Jesus and have this grace flowing throughout you, we invite you to come up as our worship team sings the last hymn, and we invite you to come up to the front where Caleb and I will be standing. Your name on the road marked by suffering. 
you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Until again we meet in worship. Amen. Amen. Amen.